Let us pray. Father, you know the road that everyone here has walked this morning to be here. We pray this morning that you would minister to our souls and to our hearts. That what each one needs, we place ourselves in your hands for your spirit to provide. In the name of Christ, our King, who showed us that this is who God is. We pray, amen. Thank you all. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. We're continuing this morning in our Your Tough Questions series. What makes them your tough questions is for the last year, off and on, we've passed out cards that you have filled out and turned back to us uh, with things you'd like to hear addressed on a Sunday morning. At the start of the year, I had said the most asked question was, how does a good God allow suffering? But I did a recount. I was actually incorrect about that. Uh, the most asked question was your questions about divorce, remarriage, Christian marriage. You had so many questions that last week we had to split the, this uh, topic into two. So part one was last week, and if you missed that, it, it's on the website. And we're going to go with part two today. I want to thank Pastor Dan again, who very graciously uh, gave up one of his messages to make room for this one to become two. So this morning we turn a corner with your questions. We start talking about uh, your questions about divorce, particularly the pain, the emotional pain of divorce. So let's get right into it. The first uh, question that we have is, how do we make others understand just how painful it is for the spouse who was hurt or left? In order to answer that question, I'll have to make a few assumptions. I hope I'm correct about who wrote this. So one is that the person who wrote this is probably divorced or at least divorcing. They're probably the one who uh, was hurt probably by abandonment or adultery or, or something like that that has gone on. And third assumption is that they don't feel understood by those around them. They feel alone in this journey. So the first thing I'd like to say to, to whoever it is that wrote this question and everyone that could have written this question is that it's very hard for people to understand a pain they've not felt. It might, sadly, be impossible for you to expect married people or single people to really understand exactly what you're going through. Now, this is why for almost every pain in the universe there is a support group including Christian support groups for people who have gone through divorce. Uh, for here at the church, I would recommend Mercy Street. Mercy Street is a ministry for people who have all sorts of hurts, habits, hang-ups. It's a circle you can join uh, where you'll be with people who have a greater chance of understanding what it is to be hurt. So to join that, you, just, you really just show up to church on a Saturday night at 5.30 and you go upstairs and you enter the room. It's an anonymous group, so no one will know you're there. I don't know who's in and who's not other than friends who have told me they go, but I know you'll walk into that room and you'll find a circle of people who have a greater chance of understanding. I do want to say on this, there's a grace that can also come from you with this problem. It's a grace where you let your friends off the hook for not being able to understand. So they can't understand your pain, but can you tolerate their ignorance? That's a grace that can come from you. The second thing I want to say about this, and this applies to everyone in the room who ever experiences a pain of any kind, and that is I want to remind us all that most people we meet are very self-centered 
and lack empathy. That means when you tell someone else that you're hurt, they're not really listening to you, except to wonder if what's happening to you could ever happen to them. That's about at the level they're engaging. And in that moment, then, they will usually say something back to you very hurtful. For instance, if, you, if someone said, oh, you look down today, what's, what's the matter? You say, well, my son is in the ICU because he had an accident on his bicycle. They'll say back to you, well, that's why my, we always have our kids wear a bike helmet. I mean, what a dark thing to say in that moment. Did they really just say to you, uh, well, you're a bad parent, and if your kid dies from their injuries, it's your fault? And I'm telling you, no, that's not what they said. They're just being incredibly selfish. And in that moment, when you described your pain, this is all they thought. I have a kid. He has a bike. I hope this never happens to me. And then they say, well, what are the things I'm doing to make myself invulnerable to pain? And then stupidly, they said it out loud to you out of their own fear. I, you know, I want you to believe me on this. You, you are not the target of a comment when someone makes a comment like that. Your friend is just not emotionally smart enough to know what they're saying is very poorly timed. So in the same way, if, you have, uh, if you're going through a divorce, your spouse left you, your spouse cheated on you, you try to tell that to someone, they might say something like, well, did you ever pray together? Or, 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 or my, Matt and I, we have a date night every Friday night. That's what kept us going. The comment completely lacks empathy, but I'm telling you it's not about you and it's not about your failure. It's just them trying to convince themselves that it could never happen to them, like a child nervously whistling in the dark. I do recommend if you're in this situation, you do try to find at least one friend who's smarter than that and capable of real empathy. And if you're short on that, I again will mention Mercy Street. It's a place you come on a Saturday night. You just go upstairs, and there is a circle of people who walk with a limp. I don't mean a physical limp. I mean the limp life leaves you when you've been hurt. And uh, for those who have been in that longer, they'll, be, they'll know not to say this kind of stuff. In fact, they even have rules about when someone's sharing their hurt. You can't just say the first thing that comes into your head. You just listen. So that was a huge question. Next question is also about dealing with pain. How can we help our children deal with the pain of divorce? Uh, no one needs me up here to go on and on about how much divorce hurts children. Even a divorce that rescues children by letting them escape abuse is still very difficult. Because no matter how bad a parent is, no parent is all bad. So there's always something you love about that parent, even if they abused you and you miss it when you're separated from it, even if it saved your life. So it's hard. Um, I also want to say that I lack the qualifications to really say how you help a child through the pain of divorce. But I did have a conversation with uh, my counselor and my friend, Mike Walls. And Mike's name and contact information are in the program this morning if you would like to use it. But I asked him your question, and here are some things he said just in the way of getting us started. First thing Mike said is that you want to keep the lines of communication open because there's no other way for your child to make sense of divorce than communicating uh, with you. He reminds us of 1 Corinthians 13, which says, When I was a child, I spoke and I thought and I reasoned like a child. Mike says you're going to be surprised by some of the conclusions your children are drawing about divorce from their perspective, and you want to be there to talk about the conclusions they reach 
Because often kids blame themselves. Mike says that's just the way children think. If something bad is happening to them, kids tend to think they must have caused it. That's the way kids are. And they don't tell you very often that they blame themselves. This is why when a kid gets sick and throws up in bed, you know how they always cry and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, over and over again, like they meant to. And you have to tell them, it's all right, it's not your fault. And that really eases they do the same with divorce. They think if anything affects them, they must have had a hand in causing it. And you want to be there to hear that and correct that as it arises. They need reassurance that it's not their fault. Uh, the next thing that Mike said about this was a, a divorce is a time of turmoil for everyone. And as adults, you'll need an emotional support system and your kids cannot be a part of that system. You are there for them on this one. They are not there for you. So even if he said they're a highly intelligent teenager, don't overshare your stuff with them, what caused the divorce, how you're feeling about the divorce, how your ex is behaving. They are not ready for that role because they are not adults yet. Mike says we have to deal with our own pain and then we'll, so we can recognize our children's pain and be there for them. So again, working through your own pain, I recommend there's a counseling number, uh, Mike is in the program this morning. If you'd rather have a woman or someone from the congregation or somebody from a different town or whatever you want, I can encourage you to talk to our pastor of community life, Marta Gillen, who keeps quite a list of counselors with all sorts of specialties to help. And then we have other things in community life here in the church to be part of your emotional support system so you can let your kids out of that and be there for them. Next thing Mike says, the hardest thing, you want to work toward forgiving your ex and to be able to work with them so your kids don't pay for all that unresolved pain. Now, forgiveness is something we talk about a lot here in the congregation, and we'll continue to preach a lot about forgiveness. Uh, I, there's not time today, so in short, I want to say forgiveness is a long process. I can't say forgive your ex, and you can't sit in this seat and go, oh, all right, I'll do that, and then walk out of here and it's done. It doesn't work that way. It's a long process. It's a difficult process. If I'm just going to empathize with you, I'll say, you know, they did you wrong and you're really angry about them. You know, you don't, it's not going to be easy to go through forgiveness. If I was doing the long talk today, I would be telling you to follow the book called The Art of Forgiveness by Lewis Smedes. He was a pastor. Uh, the Art of Forgiveness by Lewis Smedes is the book I would be preaching if I were preaching it this morning. So I'll, I'll recommend that to you. We bought some copies of that. They're at the coffee bar today, and you can pick up a copy of that if you'd like. Um, if you don't want to buy a copy of the book, I know that that book is across the street at the library. And uh, it guided me through my own journey of forgiveness more than once. So I, I do recommend that. Those are some things to get started on helping your children deal with pain. I want to thank everyone who asked those questions. We turn a corner here with this next question. Remarriage. That's a great question. It's just one word and a question mark. Remarriage. And they're right. I totally know what they're talking about. I don't need any further clarification. There's tons of confusion in Christianity about what Christians who are divorced uh, can do about getting married ever again. And the confusion comes because of uh, things like this that Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. Yow! Then you turn over to the apostle Paul, 
And uh, he's not much more help. In uh, 1 Corinthians, it says a wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And a husband must not leave his wife. So that all seems pretty clear. If you're a Christian and divorced, you don't get remarried. Seems pretty clear if you just read two sentences. You know, Jesus says that more than once like that. But in every case, and you all knew this already, you've got to read the whole story with the Bible. You have to follow the whole conversation. You can't do a needle drop on one sentence. So we did the detailed Bible study on this last week. Um, and if you weren't here, I recommend that on the website, but I'll do the shortened version again today. When Jesus says, if you divorce your wife and marry someone else, you commit adultery. He's speaking to a culture that's very legalistic by this point in history. He's speaking to people who understood you don't commit adultery, no matter what. If you commit adultery, they're literally going to throw rocks at you in the street and kill you. But you can divorce your wife if she burns your soup and get a new one. You can divorce your wife if you like the new girl next door better. You can divorce your wife for any reason and replace her. Jesus comes into this culture and says, okay, you've got adultery down, but then you divorce and replace. Divorce and replace. Jesus says, that's the same as adultery. A man who just divorces his wife and marries someone else, that's the same as adultery. They also thought as long as you didn't commit adultery, you could window shop all day long. Stand on the street corner, stare at women, think dirty thoughts. Jesus says, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, it's the same as adultery. He says, this is about your heart and learning faithfulness. It's not about following a very legalistic code. I think it's awful that we took his words when he's trying to say, stop the legalism. Protect your heart. If you divorce and remarry, it's just the same as adultery. And we go, oh, so remarriage is the same as adultery. We turned it right back into legalism. Oh, my goodness. So we got to remember what he was doing and what he was changing. So what's going on with Paul? Why does he say that? Well, you have to read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I do recommend that you do that today if, if you're struggling with this. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you read it, Paul is telling everybody not to get married. He tells single people don't get married. He, tells, he, he, he just says, stop, stop it. Why is he wanting everyone to be Single. Well, about verse 26, Paul says, because of the present crisis, this is a terrible time to be getting married. We don't know what the present crisis is. Maybe there was a famine. Maybe there was a war. Maybe there's a persecution. But Paul's telling him, it'd be easier if you all would just do what I do. Just stay single. You can move around. You can minister. It's a lot less trouble. But, Paul says, if you can't control your hormones, then go ahead and get married. Now, Paul didn't say can't control your hormones. He said something even better. If you have the hots for someone, just go ahead and get married. It, it, he did say that in the Greek. So um, it, it says, yeah, so it's easier because of whatever's going on, and we don't know in the letter, if you just stay single. But if you can't, then don't be fornicating and all that stuff. Just go ahead and get married. So then he turns around and he says, now, if you've gotten a divorce, just stay single. If you've got to go back, at least go back to the person you left, he says. But I'm recommending you not be married. Now, from this, it's really not a teaching against remarriage. It's a teaching, Paul saying, you know, when the chips are down, serve the Lord and focus on the, the Lord. And if you're able to move about as a single person during these difficult times, I highly recommend it. But even Paul says, if you can't, then go ahead and get married. You don't want to trade one difficulty for a pile of sin. 
So that is what's going on with Paul. So after doing that Bible study, I think I can say with confidence that if you had a divorce heaped upon you, you, you did not want it, um, or it was necessary for safety or something, you know, like addiction or something going on in the marriage, then you can certainly remarry later without guilt before the eyes of God. Now, if you sought the divorce, if you mutually agreed to it, there wasn't some big uh, dramatic thing that led to it, I can answer that question as well, but I want to add one question before we do. Another one of you asked, if you get divorced, can it be considered a punishment? And so staying single is your penance. I hope that doesn't sound odd that they wrote. I just feel like it's what's happening to me. I don't find anywhere in Scripture or in church history to say divorced people are, are cursed with singleness forever after. However, I would like you to consider this possibility that perhaps your singleness following a divorce, even if it goes on for decades, might be a, grift, a gift and a grace from God. I know that's very difficult, so, so stay with me. Um, you have been through one divorce already. Something didn't work. All divorces are traumatic, even the ones that save your life. You need time to heal. You need time to retool your heart and retool your mind into the type of person who could have a successful marriage, who could find real love. So I want to ask, did you do any counseling following your divorce about your divorce? Did you do any spiritual direction? Did you do any guided introspection? Did you reflect on what went down? What was your part in it? That's an important question to answer. Even if you just come down to, well, I picked a crazy person, I didn't know they were crazy, and then they went crazy. What made you the type of person who marries a crazy person? Who couldn't see it? Because here's, we, say, we know that 50% of marriages into divorce is a statistic, but here's the real breakdown of that. 41% of first marriages end in divorce. 63% of second marriages. 73% of third marriages. So the more you do this, the, the worse it can get. You don't want to get on that treadmill. So I want you to consider this, that God is not punishing you with singleness, but he may be waiting on you to go on a journey with him. To go on a journey with him into being transformed in the type of person who could truly find love and love someone else and be loved. He may also be taking you on a journey with him into becoming the type of person who doesn't, isn't needy for love. A type of person who can sit and say, there's me and there's my God and it is enough. The irony of that is the type of person who isn't needy like that is actually the type of person most single people are looking for. You know, no one wants to marry a Klingon. So there is me and there is God and it is enough. I don't know that that's what God is doing with you. I don't know you and I don't know God's purposes for you, but I would like to put that as a seldom discussed option on the table to think through and pray through. Now, for those who are single and looking, one of you have a question. What is Lakeland's stance on living together before marriage? 
65% of Americans now live together before marriage. From, from what I have seen in the world, I was frankly surprised it was that low. 65% though of Americans are living together before marriage. However, given our high divorce rate, I don't think that everybody's doing it is gonna help us because everybody is also getting a divorce. So this was very fun to preach in the 90s because in the 90s we had statistics that said if you lived together before you were married, you were more likely to uh, be dissatisfied with your marriage and more likely to get a divorce. But now in 2015, uh, the statistics really don't say that anymore. The, the, the statistics do say if you live together before you are 25 years old, you are more likely to get a divorce, far more likely to get a divorce. And that's what the statistics will tell us today. We are entering a bizarro world, everyone. Uh, I visited the conservative Fox News online website, which said there was absolutely no problem living together before you're married as long as you're both older than 25. That's a conservative uh, reporting system that said that. Then I went over to the liberal New York Times, and there found an article that said living together before marriage is a bad idea no matter how old you are. All right, so now we're where the conservatives are telling you to shack up and the liberals are saying don't do it. And, and so I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not going to use any statistics this morning. It's not there. Uh, everything's in disarray. Pastorally is how I want to speak. Pastorally uh, I continue to recommend that you not live together before you're married. Not only is it the best words we have from scripture. Your marriage deserves a thoughtful selection process. Your marriage requires spiritual discernment on the front end. There's some matchmaking to think about. Is this a good match? Are we a good match? There's some character checking to be done. Is this a person of integrity? Is this a person of honesty? Is this a person of hard work? There's some mental health watch to be done. Is this, does this person have anything going on with them that would make it impossible for them to carry on a long two-way relationship? Um, a lot of mental health stuff is affected by seasons, so you should watch this person from a safe distance um, for a whole year. See them, I'm not joking, see them function at a high level and a good level through all four seasons of the year. You don't want a, a binge drinker at Christmas time. You don't want to discover that after you're already married. All of this process is muddied up when you become sexually involved and financially interdependent too early. You start upgrading your furniture together. You start buying cars together. You start having living quarters. You vacation together. You start doing all the stuff that married people do when you're not married. And all that pre-work gets pushed to the side. You just start doing the stuff married people do. Or you have a sleepover that slides into being a marriage somehow. Because they spent the night, and then they spent two nights, and then they brought their toothbrush, and then you gave them half of the top drawer, and all of a sudden you're married. That's not how you want to move. That's not the way Christians do that. Now, I know many of you did it exactly that way. 65% of you did it exactly that way, and it's turned out fine. I know you two are laughing because you got, yeah, yeah, I know. They got engaged after two weeks, and they've been married like 40 years now. So 45, so... Uh, giggle, giggle. <laughs> but uh, I hope you realize you're probably a mathematical anomaly. We're probably not going to... We enjoy that. Yes. 
we're probably not going to put that into our premarital curriculum. Um, so for many of you, it's turned out fine. And I want to say I don't, I don't judge your marriage. God's grace abounds. We don't judge the quality of marriages by did they start out the Christian way. In Christianity, we're not supposed to judge much of anything, but especially not where things came from. We judge things by, if we judge them at all, how they're doing and where they're going and how God has redeemed it for his purposes. So, so amen to all of you. However, however, I'd still ask you not to train up your children to take those same risks because there is a better way. It's not foolproof either. The Christian way is not foolproof, nothing is, but I'm commended to my own children, and as often as I stand up here, I will commend it to your children. And I'd ask if you would also join in that message of a thoughtful and reflective and a disciplined love. So thank you for all those questions. I, I want to close, if you'll allow me, with a question that wasn't asked, because I bet you wouldn't know the words. I want to talk to those of you who don't have a divorce, yet, and you don't have some big dramatic moment, you know, that makes it obvious that you're just currently really unhappy in your marriage. I want to address, of you that don't address those of you who don't suffer abuse or adultery or addiction or anything else extreme, but you are fighting all the time. You come home or your spouse comes home and you don't really know what's going to happen next. Maybe there's going to be a big blowout over some little thing. Or maybe you're more imploders where everybody shuts themselves up in their room or in front of the TV or freezes each other out and stops communicating. But it's either going to become volatile or frosty at any given moment and you don't know why. And it's getting to the point where someone says something about a mental or emotional abuse and you think, well, maybe, I don't know, but I know I can't take this anymore. Your, death, your marriage is becoming a death by a thousand tiny cuts. If now I'm describing your marriage, I want to say that there's more than a good chance. I don't know, but there's more than a good chance that your marriage is actually suffering from a series of personality clashes. That if you understood them, you could be free from them. You think your spouse is slipping mentally. They just need some meds. Or you think your spouse is slipping morally. They just need to show up to church and pray more. Or you think they're just turning into a nasty or controlling or a stupid or a spacey, unrealistic person. They're just going off the rails. And I want to say it, it's probably, if I'm describing you, not the case. In 2011, my wife asked me to, if we could go to marriage counseling. And I said, no, we don't need that. To me, marriage counseling seemed like something divorcing people do, not something bickering people do. I also thought that she just wanted to get me in there so, you know, they could fix me because I'm so mean and grumpy. And I knew, one, I don't need that. And two, it's not going to work because obviously she is the one with the problem. So we didn't go. So we had a whole other year of this. Now, I know at your house, maybe you go to your corners and sulk and are silent. But at our house, it's sparks and conflict. So we went through a whole other year of that. And finally, I decided she's on the crazy train to crazy town. So I suggested that, why don't we go to counseling? And she agreed. And I thought, okay, now we're going to get in there and fix her nuttiness. <laughs> 
what I learned, what I learned within the first appointment, if not the first 15 minutes of the second appointment, is my wife has a basic fear, and it creates a filter of having a, a basic fear of having a controlling husband. Someone is going to tell her where to go and what to do and what she can buy and what she can't buy and what she can be. And where, you know, it's just going to control everything. And so she has this filter up for everything I say passes through that basic fear. And I have a basic fear of having a mentally ill wife. Watch how many times I preach. I warn you about crazy people. Because there was some mental illness in my family. And so I, without realizing it, had written a script that you get married, the wife goes nuts, and the dad has to deal with it. I had almost written the play, and so everything she ha says to me, I'm watching. So everything we said dredged up these dark fears we didn't really fully admit that we had. Her filters were certainly hidden from me and mine from her, but also our filters were partially hidden from ourselves. Once we realized they were there, we began this beautiful dance of communicating about what's really going on and not about who's going to change the cat's litter box. And never mind that I didn't want to have a cat in the first place. It has made all the difference for us. So next week, Ashley and I are going to sit up here with our counselors, Mike and Becky Qualls, right here, and we're going to do a marriage counseling session right here in front of you. So even if your marriage is great, you don't want to miss this because you're going to see the pastor air out all his dirty laundry in front of everyone. But I want you to see it. I want you to see something of it because I didn't know what it was till I went in either. Here's the deal with counseling. It is not the last bus stop before divorce. Counseling is continuing education credits. It's continuing education credits. Unless you're a relationship expert. Anybody care to stick their hand up and say, I'm a relationship expert? Okay, good. <laughs> Unless you're a relationship expert, it's reasonable that at some point you're going to need to see one. If you started having blood sugar problems, you wouldn't say, well, I think I have type 2 diabetes. I'm just managing it at home just drinking some orange juice, you would go see an expert. If a pipe broke in your basement, unless you are a plumber, you would probably call one. So unless when you were married at 25 or 28 or whatever you were, you had everything you needed to carry on a lifelong marriage, you might need somewhere along the way to update your operating system. You might need to go for the installation of a, a few more terabytes of relational RAM. Here's what my counselor Mike said to me. He said, we think marriage should be easy. We think we move into a marriage that we're moving into maintenance-free living. And what we all learn is that every marriage is a fixer-upper. Every marriage is a fixer-upper. And you know what you'd have to do with the fixer-upper? You have to go over to the Home Depot, the counselor's office, and get some tools. And you know how it is when you go to the Home Depot. You gotta go back three or four times till you get the right tool. And that's what it is. So thank you for everyone who sent these questions in to us. Uh, I think they got some things into our, our community and our congregation that we needed to, to talk about again. Um, so thank you for those. Sarah Wilcher from Mercy Street is here to share, because I mentioned that several times. And Sarah, would you mind to come up and tell us a little bit about Mercy Street and what that could mean uh, for folks? Hello. Um, first of all, Garrett, for someone who 
isn't a Mercy Streeter, you really get it, and I'm grateful. Um, a lot of people at churches that have recovery ministries fight against their pastors to get it, and um, I'm just grateful for Lakeland that you get it. So um, I've, I sit in a weird position because I'm kind of the face of Mercy Street, and I, um, it's very dear to my heart. So when I talk about it, I used to talk about it and just be like, you guys all need to come. And, and, I, and the funny thing is, is that nobody wants to come. And so it's a weird thing to be, have so much love for a place and a space when nobody wants to come or thinks they need to come. And I'm okay with that. I'm really, my heart is really still with that. Um, but I think, so I'll just tell you really quick, like, what would happen if I did come? Um, which you probably won't, but if you did come, um, not only will you, probably not, you won't, but if you did come, you would walk in the door, and you, you would be probably like, oh, yeah, I'm so scared, and, um, and my heart aches because I've never was scared to go because I just needed it, so, so if you're really scared, I'm, I'm like, wow, you're here, and that's amazing. And we would sit, and you'd get introduced to people, and um, we would worship. We would have worship. Actually, last night, our music people didn't, couldn't come, so we didn't have any. So one thing we tell, if you do come, we ask you to come to six different meetings because you're going to be like, well, that's way different than when I first came because when I first came. But anyway. So we ask you to come to six different ones because God does something different every time. Then we would, after worship, we um, open up with, um, a serenity, the serenity prayer and not the serenity prayer that you probably know because the serenity prayer actually has a whole section after it that you've never heard that is my favorite part. And I'm not even going to tell you what it is because you only get to know if you come to Mercy Street. Um, but it's, it's awesome. It's, um, sometimes people come just for a year and they're like, oh, I just that prayer just keeps coming up. It keeps bubbling up and it's changing me. I'm like, that's good. So then after that, we um, learn where we um, focus on the 12 steps, and we call them the Christ-centered 12 steps because actually the 12 steps were founded deep in um, this, the Bible and um, Christianity by a group of men called the Oxford Group, and one of them was named Sam Shoemaker. So we talk about a step, and we read um, the steps, and then we read scripture that goes along with them. And then after that, we, we've been watching these really amazing videos from the work of the people. And everybody's like, oh, how come they don't show these at church? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Not cool enough. They're not, we're in, like, Linda's not cool enough. But anyway, so we do that, and then we break into men go in one group and women go in another. And um, that is the time where I would say um, is very different than if you were to, come to a friend that Garrett said when I resonated with a lot of things that Garrett said is when people say dumb things to you when you're hurting and at Mercy Street we have really strict guidelines and um, they they made some people came a long time ago and they're like I just wanted people to fix me and you guys don't <laughs> you just listen and so what Mercy Street I can just tell you what it's done for me is um, I found that when the wheels were coming off the bus of my life that there was a big disconnect between what I said I believed and what was happening in my life. It was just a very big gap. And I was an elder. I was your elder as this was happening, so 
Um, that's just the truth. It's just a big gap. And so what Mercy Street has done for me is that gap has, has grown very much more narrow. And I, one, figured out really who I was. I had no idea as a 40, I don't know how old I was when I started coming, but as a 40-something-year-old, no idea who I was. Did not know enough because I was never still enough to really think about it because I was so focused on fixing problems and getting things going. And um, the second thing is that I've learned who God is. And what I'm learning is that his love is so much more limitless than I ever thought. And I used to say that God loved me, but um, it's like there's been this mask that has been taken off and I've walked into this room and there's a much deeper universe and it's bigger and wider and more fabulous. And so the song that we sang at the beginning, the Be Still, I would say that has been my journey through Mercy Street. And it's not about fixing whatever the bus is, it's really going to be about you and God. And that's probably why a lot of you won't go. But that's a big takeaway. Thank you, Sarah. Um, that's a big takeaway from this morning and this whole series is this. Uh, our God has told us what he's told us about marriage and told us what he's told us about divorce and told us what he's told us about singleness. Not to say, now do it this way or you're going to tick me off. Our God has told us these things because the, he said, this is the way that is good for your soul. This is the way that leads to life. But, and this is what Jesus made abundantly clear, if you don't do it, if you fall down and you hurt yourself, if you skin your knee, if you crack your head open, if you put yourself into a coma, I'm speaking metaphorically, by not doing these things I've told you to do, your God wants you to run home to him. He wants to put you on his knee, and he wants to heal you. He wants to give you a Band-Aid. He wants to tell you again who you were. So when you don't do it God's way, he doesn't want you to run from him. He wants you to run to him because ultimately he wants to be able to put you back on the ground and say, now go out there and try it again. Go out there and do it again. That is who our God is. If you learn nothing else about divorce, uh, remember that. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to us to show us who you are. We thank you for Sarah and her leadership and all that lead Mercy Street with her as a place that we can go. We thank you for the church that has many places we can go to feel you holding us and healing us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Tell us again the time and day. Every, every Saturday at 5.30, and there's child care provided. Mm. Um, okay. So we'd love to see you, but Wonderful. I probably won't. Thank you. <laughs> well, let us stand, and I will say the good word. Once again, may the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.